life, despite what the headlines on TV and newspapers say, is mostly made up of a sequence of small things, random events and small encounters. If you are lucky or unlucky, there will be momentous things happening to you along the way. Big, life-altering moments where everything you knew changes in an instant. Usually these things are not the things we worry about. Usually these things blindside you as you cross the road one wet Thursday afternoon or are delivered in hushed tones in doctor's offices. Most of the time, however, we just worry about the small things and fret and go about our business, our existence defined by the wonderfully mundane day-to-day minutia of existence itself. For the decade between 1173 and 1183 or so, this was life in London. There were great, big, momentous events taking place, but London was mostly just being London. Trading, talking, getting married, having children, raising their children, paying their taxes, going to mass, having food, trying not to get sick. This was the routines of life in the city. They would listen to events from elsewhere. They would worry about wars. They'd catch glimpses of famous people. They'd try not to step in the copious amounts of animal crap in the streets. They probably bitched about the state of the economy and the taxes they had to pay. Londoners during that decade lived lives that were at a base level remarkably similar to Londoners living now. And big, momentous events that would change the city are just around the corner. But not here. Not now. So, let us give praise to these mundane things and describe a decade where, while exciting things were happening elsewhere, London itself was sitting back and just watching it all, safe and snug, Hi there, my name is Saul and this is the Story of London, a podcast dedicated to simply telling the history of the city from the point of view of the residents at the time. And this chapter is in direct response to the last three chapters. Henry II's volatile reign was about to get even more volatile, but rather than go off and follow the adventures of errant clerics in France or desperate mercenaries in Ireland, as the last three chapters have done, this one is grounded firmly in the city itself. Welcome then to chapter 73 of the story of London, in praise of the mundane things. So, for your average Londoner, or even your not-average rich Londoner, it would be hard to ignore the events of the next few years. Because the great big powerful King Henry II was about to run headlong into the biggest political crisis of his reign. And it was a doozy. His eldest son, Prince Henry, a.k.a. King Henry III, King-in-waiting, The guy he had spent all that time and effort getting crowned de jure King of England, which had basically caused the last argument that had led to Thomas Beckett being killed, this guy decided to rebel against his father. The words, you ungrateful little s**t, 
come to mind about now. However, to give him his due, from the point of view of big, rich, psychotically inclined, hulking man-tanks of the time, no, 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 Prince Henry had legitimate reasons to rebel. As London sat there in 1173, all they knew is seemingly out of nowhere news arrived that Henry II was in sudden trouble. Basically, what you had were where his two oldest sons kicked off against him. Prince Henry was unhappy, apparently, that despite holding the title of king-to-be, he didn't actually do anything of consequence, and his father didn't give him much money. And, like, he was a king, and daddy should allow him to be all kingly. Meanwhile, his younger brother, Prince Geoffrey, was supposed to marry the daughter of the Duke of Brittany, and therefore become Duke of Brittany, but daddy seemed busy doing other things, and he didn't have any lands to rule and peasants to rule over. So he and Henry, as the two oldest sons of Henry II, decided to find some sympathetic, psychotically inclined man-tanks in armour and raise their banners of revolt. At the same time this was going on, King Henry II's relationship with his wife, the formidable Eleanor of Aquitaine, had hit rock bottom. And when her two oldest sons raised their flags of rebellion against their father, the Queen, she encouraged them and encouraged Henry's third son, Prince Richard, the apple of her eye, to join in. And whenever you have three sons of a king rebelling against him, well, at that point, any local barons who had issues with the king kind of felt they were safe to join in. What had caused the row, actually, had been King Henry giving his youngest son the infant Prince John, three castles that belonged to Prince Henry. Henry had howled his objection and then fled to Paris. Paris was where King Louis of France was and he was more than willing to sponsor and support rebellions against Henry II. And once this rebellion had begun, it began to get a life of its own. Henry II was a great big powerhouse of a king and it steamrolled everybody over the last few years. So a lot of people kind of wanted payback. Up in Scotland, King William decided to join in, and then the nearby Count of Flanders, and then the Count of Bois, and then the Count of Boulogne, they all joined in as well. Barons revolted against Henry II across England, and in Brittany, and in Maine, oh, and in Poitou, oh, and rebellions also took place in Normandy. Yep, basically everywhere you looked, it appeared as if everyone was sick of Henry II. Apart from London. London was okay under Henry, but we'll get to that in a minute. This rebellion now had international backing. France and Scotland were throwing their weight behind it. And yet, Henry II still had some really crucial castles under his control, which meant as long as they remained active, his enemies couldn't get a real foothold against him. And he had a tight grip over the cross-channel traffic. And finally, well, London's attitude towards him was indicative of most of the urban centres off the Angevin Empire. The urban places, they liked Henry II. So with all of this going on, Henry II responded as he usually did in times of crisis, moving with incredible speed. And London would have heard, carried on ship, the news of this great conflict going on all around them. They would have heard how Henry had captured his wife and taken her out of the equation, but then they would have heard of a massive three-pronged attack had been launched into Normandy with armies attacking from Flanders and from Paris and from Brittany, timing their attack to hit the king when he was distracted elsewhere. Henry responded to this by moving fast. He 
came back to England, raised some cash, returned to Normandy, counterattacked, massacred the French army under King Louis, um, before sending another army out against the forces of Brittany and then joined them to ambush and massacre the, the army of Brittany. Meanwhile, back in England, London would have heard that the Earl of Leicester had fled the country in rebellion and then hired 3,000 Flemish mercenaries and had invaded the country with them. Yep, the long-running tradition of European invasions continues, and the Earl of Leicester led his forces, along with a few of the rebels, in an inconclusive little campaign, which London would have heard was doing okay until they were tried to cross a river, when they were ambushed by royalist forces, and the mercenaries fled and got trapped in a local swampy region, and the nearby villagers killed them all. Real nasty being killed by peasants is never nice. A bit of time passes and Henry faces an invasion of Scotland that got as far south as the Midlands and another invasion of Normandy, the enemies of the king trying to keep him off balance. He, of course, focused on the most important provinces of his empire, which meant he went to southern France. The Scots ran into loyalist forces led by Henry's illegitimate son and eventually Normandy did fall to the French and there was serious talk about there being a proper invasion of Flanders about to start, Henry II was facing a genuine crisis. So what was London doing right in the middle of all of this? Well, if you read the pipe rolls of England, you get hints of what London was doing. In 1173, for example, London sent £43 to the king while he was in Normandy. And when he was in England, they hired carts to carry treasures to him. What they were doing was what they did best supplying the king with cash. The oligarchs of London maintaining their usefulness to the crown. And you see proof of that in 1174. Do you remember Gervais of Cornhill? I mentioned him all the way back in chapter 63. He was the London-born moneylender who had made good on his moneylending activities and was now part of the status quo. Well, in 1174, we know he was leading loyalist forces to go after rebels in Surrey. See, London was very clearly on the side of the king. London, we also see paying £28.17 shillings for a wedding dress for the king's sister because, you know, there could be a war on, but life goes on. Maybe they did even more than that. One historian I read, a man called Howlett, pointed out that the Castellans of Baynard's and Montefilcher's castles appeared to be thinking of joining the rebellion against Henry, but that London stood firm behind the king and prevented such a thing from happening or scared off such a moment from happening. And London got to see Henry in the midst of all this crisis, because at this moment, with the Scots invading and Normandy falling, Henry felt he was suffering from bad luck because God was punishing him for his part in Thomas Becket's murder. So he returned to Canterbury and allowed himself to be publicly whipped and beaten up, basically. And then he came to London and recovered from this during that year between July 11th and July 14th. And during that time of convalescence, we know someone called Richard the Carpenter of London was paid 55 shillings for unspecified work for the king. With Henry II getting this big symbolic act of penance out of the way, well, believe it or not, events seemed to turn in his favour. The King of Scotland was defeated and captured, the rebellion in the north collapsed, and Henry was able to liberate Normandy and force the French king and his sons into talks. 
whew, crisis averted. But all of this crisis was to have an impact directly on London about a year later. You see, with the Flemish mercenaries actually invading England a couple of years before, and with the Flemish themselves promising to invade a year later, you shouldn't be surprised that Henry II was not feeling generous to the Flemish merchants who traded in and around the city. Chances are neither were the Londoners. Perhaps this is why, in 1175, Henry decided to go after the Flemish mercantile community in England. He couldn't go after them too hard, as they held the lion's share of the wool trade in England. But remember how I mentioned the German traders down in London who had that big warehouse and hall complex down at Dowgate in London? Well, in 1175 or so, Henry granted some big trade concessions to merchants from Cologne, allowing them to expand their holdings in London and allowing them to compete and undermine the Flemish merchants in the city. How did London feel about this? Well, we'll get into that in another chapter. 1175 also saw a synod at Westminster, where the king and his now reconciled son, Prince Henry, made a big show of attending before making a formal visit to the shrine of Thomas Becket in Westminster Abbey. Then the king went on to his estates in Windsor and Woodstock, and London was able to supply the king with 26 pounds, five shillings, and two pennies for clothing that year. And when he was at Woodstock, well, the Sheriff of London covered the king's wine bill during his stay, which was 16 pounds, 19 shillings, and four pence. And that's a lot of booze. I mean, how much booze was it? Well, think about it this way. In August later that year, King Henry and Prince Henry returned from visiting York, and stayed at Windsor Castle. While they were there, a big delegation from the Irish Church and the representatives of King Rory of Connaught, they turned up and all everyone signed the Treaty of Windsor there. Now, London spent £10 on wine for that occasion, which equaled nine tonnes of wine. So the earlier bill of nearly £17, that gives you an idea that when the king was at Woodstock, he liked to drink. Oh, and by the way, a quick note for any Americans and or people who don't know how English currency used to work. Back then, the basic coin was the penny. If you gathered together 12 pennies, you would have a shilling. If you get 20 shillings together, or 240 pennies, you would have a pound. Pounds, shillings, and pence. That's how the currency worked. There will be later coins and denominations like crowns, farthings, and sixpences, but not in this era. By 1176, however, London had its own exciting and great news. I hope you can remember a few episodes ago, I mentioned that priest, Peter of Colchurch, who oversaw the rebuilding of London Bridge. Well, after having rebuilt the bridge in wood, he finally raised the funds to oversee the start of a rebuild of the bridge across the Thames, but this time in stone. This was it, the creation of the London Bridge, the one within the popular imagination. Medieval London Bridge truly begins now. It was built upon and around the wooden bridge, replacing it in situ, with 19 massive stone arches holding the structure above in place. There was a gap built into it, about 30 feet left open towards the southern part of it, where a drawbridge was placed to allow ships with taller masts sail through. 
It really was a bridge on an entirely different scale from the one before, but it was also built upon a differing ethos. Since the original version of this bridge had been constructed, possibly as part of the great defence of Burr and Southwark centuries ago, the bridge over the Thames had been mostly used as a fortification. As we have commented many times before, the principal purpose of the bridge across the Thames before now had been as a defensive position to prevent Vikings sailing up the river. But now, its principal purpose was trade, to allow traffic cross the river easily. The stone version of the bridge was about 20 feet wide, and it rose in the middle so that the centre was about 30 feet above the low water levels. It must have been a nightmare to build, as we do not think construction techniques at the time had developed coffer dams, so the great big foundations those stone arches were anchored upon would have had to be made at low tide from barges. But from now, and for the next 30 plus years of the story of London, Peter of the Church of St. Mary Cole Church was to oversee the careful construction of this stone bridge. He would not actually live to see it fully constructed, and yet even dying before it was finalised, there existed two links to Peter of Cole Church within the very fabric of the bridge itself. The first came about because of his parish church. St. Mary Cole Church was located, as we said, on West Seep, the long road we today call Cheapside, and was actually located very near to the birth home of the now brand new St. Thomas Beckett. In fact, Thomas Beckett had been baptised in St. Mary Colchurch. Talk about a claim to fame. How could Peter of Colchurch capitalise upon that? I know. Why not have the church the recently martyred saint was baptised in erect a chapel to St. Thomas on the bridge, eh? Sounds like a brilliant idea. And that is why a chapel dedicated to St. Thomas was placed dead centre of the bridge. A proper little link from the London-based church he was baptised in. Oh, and the second link Peter of Colchurch had to his bridge? Well, as I said, he oversaw the construction of it until his death in about 12 or 5, when most of it was done, but not all of it. And then he had himself buried in the crypt of that chapel, and he was to remain permanently linked to London Bridge for centuries, right up until they demolished the chapel in 1832, when apparently workmen found his bones and cast them into the river. But be that as it may, London Bridge really begins now. As unimportant as this thing is, you know, it's just someone building a bridge, but as we will see, this mundane thing will become the focus of many events in London's future both exciting and tragic. The 1170s also saw something else mundane happen in London. The Jewish community grew and seemed to be growing at a fair rate based on the records and mentions in official papers. In 1177, we have our first records of a Jewish cemetery being opened on a site in what was eventually called Jewin Street, modern-day Brackley Street, just beyond the Wall of London, an area now mostly covered by the Barbican Development and the London Welsh Chapel of Dewin on Fan Street. It was to be in use for about a hundred years or so. London didn't cope well with its Jewish population. In a hundred and twenty years' time, the Jews of London would be driven out, and this cemetery would be built over a few hundred years after that. 
But we know that the latter part of the decade saw the first mention of the Jewry, London's first Jewish quarter in the early 1180s, a region that would eventually gain the name Old Jewry. The first Jewish quarter mainly occupied the area stretching from Rothbury to Wood Street and Milk Street, north of Cheapside. London, however, while all this is going on, is also looking at their king at the absolute height of his power. And I'm not exaggerating. The King of Scotland had just acknowledged Henry's supremacy in the humiliating Treaty of Falaise. The King of Connacht, Rory O'Connor, had signed the Treaty of Windsor, which confirmed Henry as the feudal overlord of most of Ireland, at least on paper. Over in Europe, he was the dominant power. I mean, the Holy Roman Emperor, Frederick Barbarossa, had just lost a long-running war with the Lombard League in May 1176, and everybody thought his power in southern Europe was being seriously diminished, just as Henry II's power seemingly reached a peak and was growing. Everyone now looked to the king of this Angevin empire as the greatest ruler in Europe. His court received envoys and ambassadors from all over the Christian world, from Frederick Barbarossa, from the Archbishop of Reims, the Duke of Savoy and the Count of Flanders. More would come. The Pope sent a personal legate to him, Cardinal Chuguzon, who remained with the king for several years and attempted to persuade Henry to take the cross and go on crusade. And I've read one historian claim that Henry II discussed with the cardinal the, about the possibility of obtaining the Pope's consent to him divorcing the Henry the Young King's mother, the imprisoned and formidable Queen Eleanor of Aquitaine, who we are fairly sure was being kept under armed guard over in Winchester during this period. Maybe London would have heard about this. Maybe they would have heard about the event of March 14th, 1176, at a great council down the river, organised by the Cardinal, where there was some kind of argument and a fight broke out over who sat where. London would have seen such matters as entertaining, sure. But, in truth, it appeared that Henry II could do no wrong politically. Henry was called to arbitrate disputes between great lords of southern Europe. There were prestigious offers of marriage for his two younger daughters. His eldest girl, Matilda, was already Duchess of Savoy by virtue of her marriage back in 1166. But even greater marriage proposals now came in for Matilda's younger sisters. In 1176, the king's youngest daughter, 10-year-old Joan, was the subject of much discussion that May when two ambassadors of the Kingdom of Sicily turned up in London, seeking for her to get married to their king. And then the other sister... Oh, wait, before I mention it, May 1176. That saw another interesting piece of London news, which the Londoners would have fixed upon. It concerned events around a certain gentleman called... William de Mandeville. Yep, the um, de Mandevilles are back. This William was the son of Geoffrey de Mandeville, who you may remember from our chapters in the Anarchy, was someone who the city intensely disliked. He was the one I mentioned arranged for his father's excommunication to be lifted and for his father to be buried in Temple Church, where his tomb lies to this day. Well, it transpires that William de Mandeville had been raised in Flanders, but had returned to England and had been designated the third Earl of Essex, and then had spent his time hanging around the court of Henry II, and during the revolt of his sons, 
Surprise, surprise, he'd stayed loyal to the king, makes a change for de Mandeville, and he'd been very active on his behalf. So, in May 1176, we see William de Mandeville, 3rd Earl of Essex, is recorded in court records for gaining a charter. London would have probably worried if he'd tried to take over the Tower of London like his father and grandfather did, but they had good news. William was pissing off. He was going on crusade. I mean, there wasn't a formal crusade going on back then, uh, which suggests he was working with, or probably went with, the Templars back to Jerusalem, because, well, things were getting interesting back there. Um, after the utter disaster of the Second Crusade, things were looking grim. The, the Christian state of Jerusalem had managed to rebuild after the chaos of the Second Crusade, and even got so far as attacking Egypt and occupying Cairo, but then along came a Kurdish-born general called Salah ad-Din Yusuf ibn Ayyub, and he'd managed to seize control over both Syria and Egypt, and his forces were encircling the state of Jerusalem. It was a desperate situation for Outrimer, with wild events taking place, like, and I kid you not, Christian pirates attacking Egyptian pilgrims going on Hajj sailing across the Red Sea. It was utter carnage, which movies like Kingdom of Heaven really can't even do credit to. And William de Mandeville had set sail to go join in that for a couple of years. He does eventually return, and eventually becomes the chief justicar of England, but that lay in the future. Still, the Crusades and the ongoing situation in Jerusalem would have been news that was talked about in London. The Crusades and the Outremer was never too far away. I mean, you see charters and gifts have been given to the convent in Clerkenwell and their next-door neighbours, the Knights Hospitaller, in 1176. And in 1177, London saw a third knightly order of crusaders, the ever-so-scary order of knights suffering from leprosy, the Knights of St. Lazarus, get a charter to be based in England. Up in a place called Burton in Leicestershire, a royal charter was granted and the hospital of... Burton Lazars, as it was later called, became the chief house of the order in England, and it was administered by a master as well as eight knights, and they erected many hospitals and commanderies all across England, at one point having as many as 95 leper houses throughout the kingdom, including London. So yeah, our dreamer was always around, and if you want further proof of England's link to what was going on in the Crusader States uh, in 1183, their former head of the Knights Hospitaller, Gilbert of Asili, well, he was due to come to England. Gilbert was one of those Europeans back in the Holy Land who had pushed for the state of Jerusalem to go to war with Egypt, and they paid attention to him because he was the fifth Grand Master of the Knights Hospitaller. But when it all went wrong, he was blamed for nearly bankrupting the order. He quit, then tried to get his job back, found it impossible, and so decided to come to England to retire. Only he never got here. In September 1183, he drowned on the channel during a storm. So yeah, so this would have been something that Londoners were focused on and aware of. Where was I? Oh yeah, King's Daughters. Back in 1177, ambassadors from the kingdoms of Navarre and Castilla came to visit Henry II, and that would see in 1178 or so, 14-year-old Princess Eleanor get married to Alfonso VIII, King of Castilla. 
The new Plantagenet dynasty was spreading its influence to the very edges of Europe. But if, but if in the big macro geopolitical scale of things, the king was at the zenith of power, no king of England would ever reach for another 800 years. Henry understood that true power over his domains was to be found at the micro geopolitical scale controlling and consolidating the lands he ruled. That eruption of violence in 1173 had shown once again that England and the continental holdings of the Angevin king could be easily dotted with castles and fortifications held by the king's enemies. Just like during the anarchy, these timber or stone buildings with their ferocious ramparts dominated whole districts and the biggest aftermath of the rebellion of his sons was that Henry knew castles like that could not be allowed anymore. In 1176, Henry, to quote one contemporary writer, quote, took every castle in England into his own hand, unquote. He literally purged any castellan he disliked and placed his own men in charge of every single one of them. And he did this to all of them, even the ones held by his, like, ultra-loyal loyalists, men like Richard de Lucy. This allowed him to send out a clear message across all his lands. The authority which allowed barons or bishops to hold a castle and employ men-at-arms was derived from the king and the king alone. But it wasn't just England. The Norman chronicler, Robert of Tornigi, noted that Henry's reign saw castles built, quote, not only in Normandy, but also in England, in the Duchy of Aquitaine, in the County of Anjou, in Maine, and Touraine, unquote. So this was not just an English thing. This was happening across his entire empire, this vast realm that he ruled. Now, I've read historians say that Henry II spent at least £21,000 on rebuilding castles in England alone. And he certainly moved away from making them timber structures. He focused on making them far more permanent and impregnable stone fortresses. Great and mighty were the stoneworks of Newcastle-upon-Tyne, Nottingham, Orford, Windsor, Winchester, and above all, Dover. But you cannot talk about these and make out he was just the King of England, and these were his main castles. Of the ones I just mentioned, only Dover could match the true fortresses he had built in Lockheed's, London, uh, Montpazon, uh, Montrichard, and Bruguncy, and the great Norman works at Falaise and Caine, and other amazing castles along the border with France. Henry also overhauled the legal system, and for London, this was a much bigger thing for them. Remember, London had its own three castles and they weren't reformed or rebuilt and there was a big palace downriver in Westminster. And all that military stuff, that had no impact on the city. But Henry's legal reforms, oof, that did, because we're witnessing now a decade of legal revolution that would influence the governance of England for generations to follow and the legacy is still seen in some respects to this day. Back in 1166, when he had issued his Assize of Clarendon, the issue that would cause him to fall out with Thomas Becket, 
Its legislation had brought the whole system of English criminal law beneath overarching royal control. Now, the ultimate authority for dealing with robbery, homicide, and the harboring of criminals was given to the royal sheriffs and royal justices. Yes, baronial and ecclesiastical courts did still exist, but they were superseded throughout England by the king's law. A standard procedure for dealing with crime was introduced. Criminals were to be rooted out by something called the juries of presentment, empaneled bodies, usually of 12 men, who are required to tell the sheriff or justice under oath all the crimes that have been committed in their local community. Under the Assize of Clarendon, royal sheriffs were then given the right to investigate crimes wherever they needed, regardless of whether these crimes crossed into a great lord's private jurisdictions. As the Assize themselves said, quote, Let there be no one within his castle or without his castle who shall forbid the sheriffs to enter into his court or his land, unquote. I mean, this is a truly revolutionary measure, for with it, the hand of royal justice reached, or tried to, into every corner of England. The king's law now clearly trumped all other jurisdictions, legally and judicially. Henry had declared himself the true master of this realm. In 1176, this idea was reinforced because it was in January of that year, Henry issued the Assize of Northampton, which modified and strengthened those laws that had been issued a decade earlier at Clarendon. The whole chaos caused by the Great Rebellion had also increased disorder and crime. Punishments were therefore made harder. Those sentenced to mutilation for theft, whereas traditionally they lost their right foot, now lost their right hand as well. To bring this justice to the people, Henry and his advisers had divided England into six judicial ires or circuits, and royal judges now began to tour the home realm, designed to bring England back to order by punishing evildoers and criminals, and to establish the king's law as the final and ultimate form of public authority. Crimes were investigated retrospectively to ensure that nobody could escape royal justice. However, the really big thing was at the same time King Henry was reforming criminal law, he also pushed royal justice into the heart of civil law. When word came back to him apparently that the justices out on the IRA discovered that land dispossession was a greater problem as physical crimes, Henry decided to reform the system by which land disputes could be quickly and easily settled, simply by opening up a new way to appeal to the royal law. The Assize of Nouvelle de Season was put into action. It allowed for a royal justice to question a jury about contested lands. Now, up till this point in England, arbitrating land disputes between the great subjects and people who owned property was a vital function of the king himself. It's what kings did. But now, in theory, all the land in England could be protected, contested, and recovered simply by purchasing a writ from the king's chancery. This would ultimately be managed by the local sheriff. And it took one of the king's most important roles from the perspective of his barons, you know, uh, sorting out land disputes, and placed it 
into a simple bureaucratic mechanism. Disputes could be settled by an application to the chancery rather than an appeal to the king himself. This was an invaluable and radical development, but wasn't done because he was some kind of revolutionary radical political thinker. It was mostly done because of the sheer size of the Plantagenet dominions and Henry's perchance for travelling around them relentlessly and at speed. But Henry was taking part in a reform of the law, so why stop now? In 1178, the Curia Regis, or Royal Council, was reorganised. Instead of following the king wherever he went, hearing appeals for justice as they travelled, five members of the Royal Council were appointed to remain at Westminster permanently to hear legal cases full-time. They effectively became England's first Supreme Court and would in time become known as the Court of the King's Bench. The legal machinery of England had been established independent of the king but exercising his full authority and was based in Westminster. This was to have a profound change on London going forward. By the next year, more writs governing land law were available, and yet more of the king's traditional personal legal role had just become a mechanism of the chancery. Um, the rights over appointments to church beneficiaries, uh, a Darion presentment, became something the chancellery did. Uh, the Mot de Ancestor was a writ that settled disputes over inheritances. Uh, the writ director or the writ of right allowed lesser men who felt they'd been denied justice by their local lord's private courts appeal to the royal court. And as you can see, it basically is a revolution in the way things were being organised. And a lot of this, because the chancery was based in Westminster, was to have a profound effect on the city going forward. In 1183, Henry II was 50 years old. He had transformed England's legal system, placing royal power at the heart of everything, and yet also making much of the crucial functions of royal legal power uh, something done by the Chancery. For London, the benefit for this came from the fact that the Chancery and this legal power of the king seemed to be based just down the river in Westminster. He'd also reformed the way people held castles and held men-at-arms. He seemed secure, rich, stable. And you saw this stability in London. I mean, you see a unique stability in the patterns of sheriffs. From 1174 to 76, you had the twin chivalry of Bicinus de Haveril and Peterson of Walter. But then in 1177, you see someone called William, son of Isabel, hold the post, and he would hold it again in 1179, and then from 1183 to 1188. And it's also worth noting that a few years from now, the Sheriff of London is to be a man called Henry of Cornhill, the son of three-time Sheriff Gervais of Cornhill. So as the king was 50... London was liking this new, sedate, stable way of doing things. Henry had been spending almost his entire life travelling the great Angevin Empire. Now it seemed it was time to sit back and enjoy the harvest of his hard work. And in London, the oligarchs still retained their power. Some things never change, but some things do change in 1183. Prince Henry, the already crowned next king of England, King Henry the Young King, 
decided to rebel against his father again. But during the campaign, he contracted dysentery and died. And suddenly, the succession to Henry II was questioned again. And the peaceful years of stability that London had known, those years of mundane events, were about to come to an end. I'm going to end this episode there. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. Hope you could follow along. And I'll be back next week for chapter 74. Thank you.